Welcome to the Bottle of Brown podcast, episode 10, with my friends Ziggy and Mr. Jones. Ziggy is a friend from college and has found himself in the public sector as a county clerk in the state of Colorado. He also runs a nonprofit serving other nonprofits. Having no public sector experience of my own, I was naturally curious to hear more. In this episode, we discuss Ziggy's public service and his penchant for sampling every beer known to man. We have a few laughs about other things as well. If you'd like to support the podcast, head over to BottleOfBrown.com and click on the Amazon banner at the bottom of the homepage. Or better yet, bookmark that link and use it whenever you shop Amazon. No special purchases are required, of course, just shop the way you normally would. But by using that link, we may get a commission off your purchase, which helps support the podcast and expand the Bottle of Brown community. So, without further ado, I give you episode 10 with Ziggy and Mr. Jones. Thanks for listening. Say that again. Nine hundred. Uh, I am my official. Let's see here. I'm pulling up the app now. There's my profile. I am at eight hundred ninety-nine different beers, unique beers, I should say, since July fourth of twenty sixteen. So I have been on this app for four years, as of two days from now, and nine hundred beers. That's some dedication right there, isn't it? I should probably check the nice house and all the other stuff we used to drink. Nine, so four and a half. Yeah, okay. So you're figuring, uh, carry the two. 200 beers a year, four beers a week. Pretty good. Of new beer. That's Yeah, of course. Is uh, (laughs) Sierra Nevada on there somewhere? Uh, Yeah, it's mixed in there somewhere. Okay, did you go through all the requisites? Did you do Keystone and Natty Light and all the stuff that we drank in school? Did did all of those, had all those... um, been you know all over the world drinking every airport i go to i get whatever the local beer is that's on tap and uh yeah been a lot of drunkenness i did give myself gout i have to take allopurinol now (laughs) the king's disease Uh, you're the king of beers i guess right that's what they would say but now that i take that medicine there's no more gout just smoke weed man a little something for the gout it's legal in colorado now it's very legal question is it when you check in on a beer, like I, I always think it's interesting when people like they go and they add like 12 beers in one sitting and I'm like, you just drank 12 pints and you're still walking. Is it when you walk into like a, a brewery and you're like, oh, I'll get a flight and you'll get like six little tasters. Do you count that as like a beer or, yeah. or are you going to get like a glass and that's a so beer? I, I count it as beers that I've tried. So like, yeah. Uh, for example, uh, this last December, we were at Costco out here, and they had a uh, advent calendar of German beers. So there was you know, oh, a box of beers. I saw those. That was and awesome. We got it. It was 60 bucks. Ultimately, only ended up liking you know four or five of the 25 beers. But you know, we, the first one we had was absolutely disgusting. We didn't try the second one after that. And it took us until... Uh, last week to try them all. So we had all these beers in the fridge downstairs in the basement. And we sat there and we opened up the beers and we each had, you know, 
couple ounces of each one. And if we liked it, we put that one aside back in the fridge for later drinking that evening. If we didn't like it, they were to the point, and I'm not generally one to pour out a beer, but some of them are gross enough that it did go down the drain. And then, you know, we went back and we pulled out the ones that were in the fridge, drank those while we were playing several games of pool until four in the morning. And then we realized it was four in the morning and I had to get up at you know eight to go to work. So just like college, it's beautiful. Interesting. But, you know, so that evening I checked in, you know, 20 some odd beers and ended up drinking, you know, only, I don't know, five of them, six of them, something like that. And there's no, there's no Hanukkah beer? There is here. There's Pride Month. Every holiday, there's there's some sort. All right, and you're and you're rocking the Shilling, which is a local craft beer. Uh, yeah, this is actually uh, by is Odell. Dark, dark in color. Odell is it is darker in color. I'd pour it all over myself in the sexiest manner, but then I have to clean it up. I'd pay to see that. It's located in Fort Collins, so about an hour north of us here. All right, what about you, Jones? What are you rocking? I went. So you went Highland Park. I got Highland Park too. It is the uh, single malt scotch uh, Valknut. So it's very smoky. Pretty good. Liking it. Um, picked it up as my uh, bonus kind of big payday. I'm going to go buy this and I don't really care how much it costs. It really wasn't that much money, but still it was, uh, it was, uh, it was nice to do. Celebration. Good for you. Yeah, I'm celebration. the Aberfeldy. That is really good. I went, I dusted a whole bottle of that the other week. Mellowed for 12 years in handmade oak casks, this smooth, sweet dram offers rich rewards for those who like to dig deeper. That's what I'm doing. I'm digging deeper with my homies. So this is to meet the hero's death in the battlefield. Yeah. Oh, hello. Oh. Wow. That's, so, okay. that's variety. Have, for those of you at home, we're looking at a fridge that's got... Uh, all, all sorts of Colorado home... 50 uh, different types of containers? Yeah. So we, we have stone, which you guys are familiar with. Mm -hmm. um, I'm sure you guys know uh, North Coast uh, Brewing for the yep. Thelonious. It's a good one. Been there. Been to the brewery. This guy, Tommy Knocker, is up in Idaho Springs. It's up there. Been there. Uh, Crooked Stave is downtown Denver. Um, that's actually a really good one. Uh, Odell is up in Fort Collins. This beer is gross. And I'm going to keep name it. it. It is. It's by Odell. And it's wit kissed white. It's a grapefruit okay. white ale. Oh, no grapefruit. No, and sometimes it's good. There's actually uh, this one back here. It's going on the. It's going to stay in the fridge for people that come over that want to have a beer, and then nice. they can drink it. Always have a random stash. That's right. That way they don't drink the good stuff. That's right. Yeah, this is another one of them. It's a Moscow Mule Ale. It has uh, ginger and lime toes. juice in it really gross mules are generally good this is a peanut butter stout by left hands called death disco it's a porter got uh, a raspberry blonde it is rather tart more of a sour drum roll is delicious drum rolls are good every day drinking beer either at eight in the morning or you know 10 o'clock at night it's fine this guy here another ipa it's delicious oh this one so you know when you have a corona and you put some lime and some salt in it Kind of what this tastes like, but a little bit uh, heavier. And you got four shelves of beer there, and don't forget the ketchup. That's good, because you put ketchup <laughs> on your ketchup. That's right. You put ketchup on your ketchup, and you got to have more cowbell. Always more cowbell. <laughs> uh, could go that route. 
I got a fever. And the only prescription is more cowbell and more beer. Smooth as Tennessee whiskey, like the song. (laughs) (laughs) All right, boys. Well, that was a good intro. We, we like to cover our three topics head on. We like to start with our brown, then we like to move into something business, and we like to end with something parenting. So I know that we've all been in various forms of business, finance, hardware, software, product sales. You worked for a credit card company. I'm curious, though, yep. as to your political career, because I thought that was a very interesting choice for you. Uh, military, obviously, so you're big on public service, but the idea of what was it, a city council spot? Well, so, yeah, it, um, it actually all started back in the day um, when I got activated right after graduating college uh, and ended up going down and uh, running Toys for Tots in L.A. for a while after I hurt my shoulder. And that's when I really got a taste for public service and nonprofit work. Once I transferred out here to Denver, um, I ended up getting a master's in public administration focusing on nonprofit work. Um, got into politics because I was looking for something extra to do. I was bored with just working and I called a county commissioner I knew and said, Hey, do you have any volunteer work or any boards or committees that need, so you need somebody on? And she says, well, we need somebody to run for city council in your city, in your district, in your ward. And I said, all right, well, let me call you back. And, um, you know, next thing I know, I ran for that one, did three years there and then came over and now county clerk, um, I'm the clerk and recorder. There's uh, about 500, a little over 500,000 people living in the county, about 275,000 voters at this point. I actually just finished running an election. We just had the statewide primary, so it was just uh, for state-level races and um, federal. So uh, we had a couple of Dems running against each other in the county for a state Senate seat and that sort of thing, or federal Senate. And is that your full-time gig or is that your side hustle? Uh, that is my full-time gig. The side hustle is actually running a nonprofit uh, called Blue Collar Missions, where I'm partner with a couple other folks, and we go around and we'll fix the equipment or do some sort of remodeling or other work for other nonprofits. Um, and some of the work we actually do is in Haiti, where we've partnered with uh, four different nonprofits one of which is a nonprofit that leases space to other nonprofits. Um, and we're a nonprofit to go fix the equipment for the nonprofits that have leased the nonprofit space. It's a mouthful. Um, another one is uh, a birthing center. Uh, one of the big issues for women in Haiti in particular is, uh, is healthcare. Um, there's a birthing center down there. Most of the births actually happen at home. In this case, there's a birth, birthing center that's set up that's you know, sterile and has nurses and midwives and all that sort of stuff. Another one is a vocational school where there's a bakery and a barber college and um, they teach uh, sewing and other things. And then the other one is a uh, safe house for sex trafficking victims. And we'll do whatever they need. Sometimes um, we'll rerun their wiring uh, to make it safer rather than having, you know, a a, uh, a plug dropping down from a 10,000 volt overhead line, um, where if you do something wrong, you just vaporize instantly and we'll put in some breakers in between to make it safe, that sort of thing. Um, did get chased by a three-legged goat that was surprisingly nimble while there. As you do. <laughs> yes, yeah, it was, it was pretty normal. Don't underestimate the three-legged goat. <laughs> yeah, uh, that goat. 
he goat. Knowing you, you were probably antagonizing it a little bit too. I got to be honest. Um, actually, at that very moment, we were in its personal space, but we were popping tarantulas out of the ground. Ah, which is an interesting process. So, how many times have you been to Haiti? Uh, been there twice so far, okay. and we were supposed to go recently, but then you know the whole Corona thing got in the way. Yeah, yeah. Well, busy boy. Good for you. Thanks. Last time that Mr. Jones and I got together, we were talking about the PPP program, and he made a couple of predictions that were absolutely spot on correct. PPP. Uh, yeah, the Paycheck Protection, Paycheck program. Protection program. It was a stimulus plan. It's the uh, government stimulus plan to small businesses or businesses of a certain size, less than yeah, uh, yep, whatever employees. Episode, episode yeah. three of the podcast. Yep, familiar. Oh, and you nailed it. Like it was yeah. awesome. Uh, it, a lot happened. I mean, I will say this is that the, the amount of turmoil I think kind of settled. Um, you know, the program finished, I think it was with $130 billion left. And I thought it would, they would go through it. But I think what was interesting, retrospectively looking back too, is that um, there was a lot of scared companies where they were put into a position where they're like, can they really document that they are enough, uh, coronavirus has affected their business enough that they can get the loan forgiven. Because the worst mm -hmm. thing would be a two-fold problem where you'd have one where the, the company would take the money and then they'd have to repay it. Well, hopefully they didn't spend it unless they stupidly spent it and whatever the case be. But, you know, if it was also shown too that they didn't need it because of the, the hardship. Yeah. But the other side of it too is the reputation risk that if like you got out in some of these businesses out there and someone was to say like, oh, well, you know, you know, Mike over at, you know, so-and-so, you know, he cheated the government out of this. And it was like that, that kind of like, you're only as good as what your reputation can be. And so that was kind of really scary for a lot of companies because they were like literally putting their pen to the paper and they're like, wait a minute, if I do this, what's the consequences that are even beyond just taking in money. It's also your reputation in the overall, you know, area that you live, like so forth. So that was kind of one thing I think was really interesting is some, is some companies got really scared. But at the end of the day, I think, as I kind of reassured a lot of the people that I was around, I'm like, look, I see what you guys got going on. I see your numbers. I know what you got going on. You qualify compared to what I was seeing on other people too. So, you know, move forward and we'll kind of work. And now we're in the phase of kind of forgiveness where, you know, hmm. we're, we're working on that side of things. And I got to be honest, I'm not making any predictions on this. It's an absolute kind of like, I have no idea. It's really complicated. And I'm just going to let this one play out without any predictions. What I understand of the problem is in order for the debt to be forgiven, you got to bring your employees back. And unless you bring your employees back, it's not a hardship loan. It's a, it's a regular loan. And mm -hmm. with an extra 600 bucks a week in unemployment, most people are saying, I'm not coming back. And so they're staying unemployed. And because the business can no longer say, I'm, I need this money to support my X number of employees, they're probably going to have to pay it all back but they need it because they need to pay overhead. They need to keep the lights on so on but. and so forth. But eventually that unemployment is going to go away and those people need to come back, but are they going to be able to do it within the window to get the debt forgiven? There was the change where they extended the amount of time a PPP loan was allowed to be used. And so they okay. extended that. So hmm. kind of that double sword where you're like, okay, 
we're going to extend it because obviously people are, are making more money on unemployment than they would working. So we'll extend it, stop it, you know, for whatever unemployment situations and the insurance goes for, you know, they'll stop that and then bring them on. It's a valid point. Like that's why this is such a, I take this, I brought Peter to pay Paul and Paul pays Peter and it goes back and forth. It's this vicious cycle between both. And there's no way to, there's no way other than, Let's see how it plays out. And everyone's situation is different. We're talking millions and millions of people here. So it's one of these that, like, it'll work itself out. And I don't think the government's sitting there on the other end, too, being like, oh, God, you know, Mike over there, he really he really messed up the government. We're going to go after him with a sledgehammer. It's like, dude, seriously, he's trying to employ people. It's the most important thing right now, period. So are you Those involved? are the nice stories. Go ahead. Are you involved with doing the lending on those and taking the applications or, or what's your experience I, with it? So my experience was um, the applications were taken in for uh, customers of my bank. They were the ones that could qualify and they're the ones who could apply because we didn't go outside the bank. Yeah. So you had to have like a relationship with us. And my role right. was approving the loan. Oh, okay. So you actually, you did all the underwriting and everything for them? Well, it wasn't much. It's verification, I think, is really kind of what, you look, what you're going to look at. Because a lot of the application was, quote, unquote, the underwriting. I mean, it was the qualifications oh, yeah. that, of certain things. And then you had to provide specific documentation that said that if you had these many employees, this is how much your expenses were. And you paid this much in um, employee, you know, last year. And so you would qualify for this size of loan. And that's how it kind of works out in place. So right. I was in, I was involved with that. It was a it was it was pretty stressful. It was a lot of work. Um, you know, my institution. You know, we everything that came through, we got approved eventually, or you yeah. know, was just you know denied for certain reasons that you know were outside because it didn't meet the qualifications. So I was kind of in that side of yes, no, yes, no, and it was a long day. I think I started the day at like eight a.m. and I finished at midnight. Like yes. it was just like work through tunes going in the ear. Let's just kind of just power through these things one after another and just crank them out. Yeah. And it was. It was fulfillment, but it was like, eh, I don't know. It was, it, it worked out. Okay. Interesting. So, I mean, is there a difference with the type of corporation that somebody would, I have a few questions for you on it. Um, Cause I, you know, thinking about it. Emma Gilles, go. <laughs> um, you know, my background obviously was in banking and underwriting before getting into politics. Um, so for, small businesses if it's a sole prop who has a handful of employees obviously that person can be held uh, liable as a sole proprietor for those funds whereas an LLC an LLP an S corp or C corp couldn't they just walk away and shut their doors and not have to pay it back well yeah but at the end of the day though it doesn't matter to me because it's a hundred percent loan from the federal government. I'm guaranteed that, that payment. So if they want to do that, it's perfectly fine. And you want to talk about what bankruptcy filings yeah. get placed afterwards or so forth. I mean, there's going to be people that that's going to happen to like, yeah. that's going to happen. People are going to take money and they're not going to survive at the end of this thing. We have to come to the realization that the world will look yeah. different for a long period of time. So to your question, yeah, that's going to happen. My role was to make sure that I wasn't, you know, giving exuberance amount of money to people that didn't qualify for certain things. And, and for whatever reasons, I mean, you know, there's other, 
we're getting down, 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 down the line here on that program where it's coming to the end, but you know, you know, you got MSLP coming right behind it and that's the main street lending program. And that'll be another interesting point too, about who qualifies for that, who couldn't qualify for PP that moves forward with that one too. So that one's got a little bit more teeth to it because you have to repay those loans. So that's kind of a difference too. Yeah. And that's, that's kind of where my, my thought process was going is what's going to happen to those businesses. Cause like you said, some will not survive. Some have already gone under. Um, yeah. And you know, so if they don't bring their employees back, they have to repay this loan. How are they supposed to cover those costs when they're not having any income? And then the, that just puts them into a further financial hardship and likely bank. So it's not really a good situation. What it's going to destroy is the cash business. It will. And that's the, I mean, what it was was basically call it a capital injection. So for all yeah. intents and purposes, the way to look at this is that like, it's like Daddy Warbucks coming in and giving you a bunch of money to inject liquidity into your company. And yeah. that liquidity, as long as you follow certain guidelines, is forgiven in the sense that I don't know anybody else's capital that someone gave me. So it's really positive as a stimulus thing. And I think it was really important to do given the turmoil that we were in. I mean, the government's the one that shut the, shut the economy down, not the owner of the business. So right. when you get when you get down to it, it was like, you know, if you're not going to make these people go to work, you got to compensate them somehow, or you're going to destroy this, the middle, the, the total middle of small business ownership and middle market business. And that's not something you want to do. Well, it'd be 2008 all over again. It'd be worse. I mean, we're already looking at it to be something that's, that, you know, you thought the recovery of 08 was bad. This is going to be, I mean, we'll see, but I think the damage yeah. is so severe. It's so deeply rooted. I firmly believe that the market is not the economy and the economy is not the market. So right now the economy is taking a shit, but the market's going strong. So is this a repeat of 2008 or is this simply going to hit the little people? Well, if you look at the, you know, that's often folks will reference how well the Dow Jones is doing as a, you know, a, an example of how well the economy is. Those companies happen to be some of the largest industrial companies in the world. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that the mom and pop shop down the corner is doing very well. It just means that GE is selling a lot of their equipment and appliances and everything else they do. So I mean, you're right. The stock market and the economy are two totally different things. One is, is a place where you can gamble and make money. And the other is people's livelihood. Um, and what I see here locally um, from the local government level is that we've got folks struggling. Um, so what you know, I've done at least is you know waive late fees, um, reduce um, merchant costs, you know, absorb some of those costs. So to to try to relieve from the individual themselves who who may be struggling, you know, looking at putting that money into their pocket instead of into the counties, uh, the the other pillars of the county, uh, the county administration side of it. They have all sorts of uh, of lending programs available hardship programs available, et cetera. Uh, and I know, you know, even from the local level, we're trying to do our part. Um, but the challenge is, is, you know, for those who may be older, the, the stock market may be doing well, but that's only for a period of time. Eventually, when those who can't afford to eat, they're no longer going to be buying things and that in itself. And if you can't buy the appliance, GE's not going to do well. And that's ultimately going to tank the Dow Jones. So, you know, it, it's, it's a process It happens over time and every industry is connected. In 08, right before everything 
you know, hit the fan and splattered. Um, you guys may recall that oil prices went through the roof. I know out here in Colorado, I saw four and a half dollars a gallon. Can't imagine what you guys were seeing in LA or in the Bay Area. Dude, I drove fly. out to I drove out to Colorado during that, and I was, it was oh, literally one of the right. most expensive trips, man. It was over like five dollars a gallon in a U-Haul yeah. driving out to Colorado, and you know, so yeah. Colorado, man. Boy, that move was doomed from the get-go. Hmm? Oh. Your, your move was doomed from the get-go. <laughs> Life has its interesting Sidebar. teaching you massive lessons in life. Mm -hmm. It was a great lesson to be learned, gentlemen. <laughs> we all have them, you snickering little SOBs out there. I yep. know you. But yes. We'll just dog you that chapter it's, on yes, what not we do. to do. <laughs> well done, sir. Well done. All right. So, but yeah, it's the impacted trucking and shipping, which started no you're right they right. can continue what you're saying the the, the the trucking and so far the shipping you know spike what did create that though i don't know i don't know if i can connect the two the the, the increase in oil and i don't i have to go back and look i don't remember i don't i don't i don't know what really kind of created it obviously the spur of why was but, there an increase in you know lack of supply and increase in demand i don't recall well either that or opec fixed the price um <laughs> But, you know, looking at it from a sequential standpoint, uh, you know, the oil prices increased and that impacted the housing, you know, construction, all everything else that does shipping, right? And so they either had to raise their prices or basically not do business. Uh, and it was all very rapid. It was in the course of weeks. And there were people who couldn't afford to fill their tanks. They couldn't go to work. Um, they were spending more money on gasoline, less money on going to restaurants and other places. So it's all, you know, all related. And, but that was the first thing that happened in 08 was that spike in oil prices that I can recall anyway. Yeah, I mean, it was such like a blind side with it. Um, I think we also, though, could definitely feel that something wasn't right when that happened like well, like back in 08 like you could totally be like this doesn't make any sense like i mean it was a simple thing is like you go out to somebody's house who's got this like i'm in riverside he's got this like you know hundred thousand dollar toy hauler he's got his rail in there and then he also has a boat and i'm like what do you do oh yeah i'm in real estate you know i'm a real estate broker i'm like really mm -hmm. uh, okay and then you ask another person, like, oh, I'm in tech sales. I'm like, really? Like, yeah. it's just like things didn't add up. Like, tech sales? Well, sure, if you're in, Sac in San Francisco, I totally get that. Out there yeah. in Riverside? Really? You're a real estate guy in Willard? Really? Riverside? Okay. Uh, didn't add up. Like, nothing added up. But he had, like, three more houses. I was like, yeah. yeah. There was a prime market problem at that point as well. Just the laws changed shortly before that, and they started lending on the um, – uh, the interest only loans. Yeah. And so nobody had equity in their homes, that sort of thing. I think there were a lot of factors that went into it, but you know. a, lot, a lot went into it. Not, not this one was pretty much, I mean, I always thought things were, this one was weird. I mean, like there was a lot of prop up on this one and I don't yeah. want to get into it too much of my feelings, but like, I, I think there was, and looking at things and I will just personally just give it to this. And, and this is my point. Is that like, I'm not saying that the economy 
should be is, you know, I, I would say that the current administration did a, did a good job at like making lessening the blow of how bad the economy would be right now. But I think that's one of the reasons why the market is so up is that it's still the residual implementation that has been put forth in the, in, in the tax reform act and so forth. So with that, the stuff I'm seeing is that it never made sense to me that companies were actually making less money in this. They were seeing a decline and, you know, their costs were going up. The amount of revenue they're bringing in was becoming less, but yet they were making more money. And the answer to why is how is that possible? How do you bring in less, spend more, but at the end of the day, make more money than the last year? And the simple answer was, it was they were it was it was it was the amount of money that were paying in taxes. So they're getting massive tax breaks to corporations and and so forth that were really really fueling kind of this make believe profit. I get it. It makes sense. Maybe they were being taxed too high. And this is a age old debate of how much should you tax a company? And I don't really have an answer for that, but I, I look at it all times with all different kind of, you know, LLCs, to LPs to corporations and so forth. Like, what do you really tax them at? And if you have offshore foreign accounts too, it's like, Oh, that's even different. So in looking at this, simply put, I saw a while ago that like there would be something that would trigger. And this wasn't, this obviously was the thing that I didn't think was going to trigger. It was going to fall, but you know, it is to say that like, we're still seeing the residual stru structure of that. And because of that, I think that's why we're seeing kind of the stock market kind of those companies aren't being affected. If they were back to the old tax rate, we'd have a much, much different kind of return in the sense of the Dow and so forth. If we're going to use that as a barometric pressure for like how the economy is doing, I don't think it's ever a good thing to measure, but yes. Yeah. So in your line of work though, how long, you know, how long are you as the underwriter uh, and as the lender seeing this as sustainable? And at what point in time are those profits from that cash injection from the, the various loans going to continue propping up our world? I think it's just going to come down to simply like who has the crystal ball to find out when this ends in the sense of like companies and people still want to do business and people want to go to work. So in doing so that like that will eventually happen. Yeah. Like I said before, there will be a lot of carnage. We're not out of the woods. I definitely spend a lot more time working on things that didn't take nearly as long as long before for companies. And so whatever industry you are, you're going to feel the pinch. So what do I look for? You know, it's going to have to just come down to a lot of different factors, such as what your, how you bring in money, who your customers are and so forth. And are they being affected in the, the industry that you're playing? In. There's industries out there right now that are really going to hurt. Um, just give one out there, gyms, you know, you've already seen 20 power fitness uh, file chapter 11. You're going to see more of that where businesses that are so closely tied to that kind of um, need, is going to go away. I think non-for-profits are really going to start struggling too. I don't have very many of them, but I would imagine that, you know, non-for-profits and their ability to fundraise has been really hurt. And that's a big portion of how they make money. And now they're yeah. going to have to then go to other people to ask for, call it donations. Well, you're not going to have any benefit to like, you know, your fundraising. You're going to have to basically ask people for money. And that's a lot harder to do when there's no kind of like, you know, one money's tighter than it should be or yeah. what it was in the past. And two, it's like, you know, I'm not bidding on a bottle of Screaming Eagle for, you know, up, like a little bit more in price and having fun that night. It's just like, robo, robo call, will you give me money? And I think that's really hard for like 
non-for-profits all the way through, there'll be some that will do really well, but there's like the little ones, the small guys, they're really going to hurt. And they're the ones that do the most work. So, um, kind of lost like, my train of thought what I was talking about, but yeah. Ours is pretty much shut down, you know, because we can't, we can't do any work. Um, you know, there's a soup kitchen downtown Denver that we remodeled a while back and they're still serving their food. But we can't really go in there and, and do anything for them. Uh, there's no donations coming in, so we certainly can't, you know, afford to do all of it out of our own pockets and can't go to Haiti, can't go to Dominican. There's a potentiality of going to Ethiopia for a little while. Can't do that. Um, so. You, know. you see it. I mean, there's definitely a one, there's just an attrition of kind of contraction in, in, in the economy itself. And there's going to be a less kind of need for spend and so forth, but then also cost cutting that'll be also there too. So, you know, you're trying to basically survive and this survival rate will eventually hit like ground zero where they're like, there's nothing left in the coffin. I don't know what it looks like. I think the truth is, is that we have to come to the sense of like, there'll be a vaccine. I don't, there's two trains of thought there. Like do you get to a vaccine or do you get to treatable situations? You know, like there's no vaccine for AIDS. What there is is a really good treatment for AIDS today. So it's like kind of that whole, how do you really see the proceeding forward is that, you know, you're going to see it, you know, hopefully a decline in death rate, but still a high rate of cases till we get to that kind of, what is it? 60% and what's the term called? It's uh Herd, herd immunity. Herd, herd immunity. Herd right. immunity. Thank you. When you get there, yeah. I don't know. Oh. Let's uh, let's get back to that a little bit later. Um, Can I ask? I you pivot. I... Yeah, go ahead. Is is your T-shirt rainbows and unicorns? Because that's awesome. I'm magical. Well, we knew that. <laughs> <laughs> I am magical. Uh, All right. So I, I want to hit the final segment of our show before I cut it loose and then we can talk about whatever. Um, has the wife's leg healed? Yeah, she's doing are you, much better. Are you back into the uh, dress rehearsals? Yeah, we're, we're in the groove. Uh, there's a lot of, I, I think I've always equivalent this to be like, we're back in line. Nice shirt. <laughs> um, we're back in line. Um, with, with the with the process of kind of but I think it's a different a different animal to today is that going for hospital visits and so forth for this uh, situation where you're you know going to fertility and so forth so it's you know it's one oh, of those yeah. things that like it's one of those things that's like it, it, it's a lot more work uh, you know in, in, in trying to get doctor's appointments and you know scheduling you know they make you do COVID tests and everything else so it's a different world today we live in so here's, here's my one thought about fertility, which I have uh, some extended family experience with, is when you're spraying uh, an automatic rifle at a target, the thing about fertility is all of a sudden a second or a third or a fourth target shows up. <laughs> you got to be very, very careful with that. So mm. spray away, sir. Because <laughs> I'm cataloging, I'm cataloging all these things. I, I was thinking about in, in anticipation of tonight, I was thinking about this is a generational crisis right now. I think that's fair to say. I think there's a ton of trauma. I think there's a lot of uncertainty. I think there's a time when people just don't know what next week, next month, next quarter is going to bring. The last time we were together having laughs like this was a generational crisis where two buildings got taken down by planes. Oh, that was terrible. So I was thinking about that kind of stuff and the the levity that I bring to it is those types of personal relationships like mom 
in terms of how the virus is affecting family life, it's a lot of volatility, at least in our households, high highs and low lows. So you have the kids and you know that you have to keep them busy because you still got to work. You got to make money. You got to, you got to do your thing, but I don't want them watching TV all day. They're boys. So they're going to fight. So we hear thump, thump, thump. And the younger one likes to wrestle and you know, he can't express himself as articulately as the junior Senator from the state of Arizona. So it kind of resorts to fisticuffs. Mm-hmm. You know, and I can't get the two of them to talk it out. And I mean, you got two boys, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, it's good for them. Yeah, I suppose at some point it's good for them. They don't have a sister to temper the uh, fury. Some weeks are good, some weeks are bad. How are you handling it? Well, well, how, well you just moved, before we get you know, on from you, you just moved, when did you move? It's been almost a year now, the last it's summer? It's been a little over a year. Yeah, over so year. it's been a, a year and a week. Okay. So you moved a year and a week ago and what, six months into that, you had to go into quarantine essentially? Good times. Nine months into that, you had to go into quarantine? Six months. Yeah. So let's call it, let's call it eight months. Yeah. Eight months in, we had to go into quarantine, but we closed on this house November 2nd. Hmm. So three months, four months into our new house, yeah. we had to go into quarantine. I mean, you didn't even really get a chance to know the neighbors or, or barely find any restaurants that are decent, you know, locate the liquor that. as the best selection, you know, Still all of them found that. Yeah. And that's, that's a tough spot. You know, how, how have you adapted in particular to being in a new place, not knowing it very well? It's a good question. First thing I did was learn the map. Yeah. So I learned where it was. I learned where the freeways were. <clears throat> Phoenix is kind of shaped like a target, right? So there's the inner beltway, there's the outer beltway. Yeah. So you're- uh, there's the 10 slicing across the middle. I'm up in the, the northwest part by Lake Pleasant. So it's still relatively the frontier out here. There's like 10 minutes away by car is nothing. Yeah. Yeah. And they haven't even started scraping it to develop it. It's just cactus and, and weeds and shit. We found a school, we found our supermarket, we found our hospital. I don't even know where the post office is. Uh, you know, we, we took care of the essentials, but because we're in a new build neighborhood, we've only met our next door neighbors and yeah. kind of knew who the people behind us were. And we kind of knew who the people over there were, but with the pandemic, everybody's inside. And occasionally though, you'll see a lot of activity at night, people walking around. Yeah. Uh, but you know, you can't get close to anybody. You can't shake hands. It's kind of like, Hey, yeah. You know, maybe if you want to be daring, you could do the elbow bump. But for the most part, it's it's very, very difficult, at least with the timing of this, to get out and and know people. And so we we met our next door neighbors who were from the Dakotas and we interacted with them a few times, but then they took off because they're snowbirds. So they've mm-hmm. been gone since April. And so here we are in our little island with Have you- have you been able to, have the kids been able to make friends with, with the school? Do you still have play days that way? Like, how is the bubble kind of like, like how big school is the bubble expanded? Good. School is good. Um, the older one wants to go back to summer camp because there's activities and he can stimulate his brain and he can read books and he can do lots of stuff. The four-year-old just wants to watch TV, so he doesn't want to go back. <clears throat> but we know at that age, it's critical that they have social interactions so that they learn the norms of what you can and can't do. Right. It's fun to play with daddy where you punch him in the balls and ah, ha ha, you know, daddy's invincible, you know, and 
Like every time, every three times he hits me, I hit him one back just to remind him that there's always a bigger fish. Uh, but I want them to have that social psychological interaction with other kids, and they're just not getting that right now. That totally mm -hmm. explains why you are the way you are now. Brilliant and handsome. <laughs> yeah, someone could describe it a little different, but okay. Somebody, somebody's got to do it. We are trying to, I, I want to get the kids out and about and making friends and learning what life's like because I'm a homebody and mom's a homebody. And as much as we like to consider ourselves introverted or extroverted, the kids need to get out. They need to get out and ride their bikes. They need to get out and meet other kids. They got to go to the park. They got to learn how to play, you know, all kinds of different games out in the field. They got to learn what a do-over is. You know, all of that stuff that we had when we were kids. I don't want them on a device. You know, I don't want them attached to screens. Um, they are getting old enough to play PlayStation with me, so that's a guilty pleasure. But for the most part, if they just sit in front of the television and watch Netflix all day, that means a, a parental failure in my eyes. Yeah. So do you think there'll be like a, a real digression with other family and other people that just don't have the time to spend with their kids? I mean, it's, this is a huge problem where this is something that could be a real issue. I mean, you could look at the statistics at the end of this, but like you could only see 50% of schools actually having kids in them next year. And I mean, you, you wipe out everything that's in the metropolis area and they have to do homeschooling. Can you imagine like the digression that you would see in overall learning and aptitude for children and kind of how far they'd be behind. I mean, well, you want to talk about like generational differences, but I mean, that's like one of them severe, but I don't know yeah. what it looks like. I got some thoughts on that. Um, you want to talk about one of the great wealth and equality divides going on in our time. It's happening right now in the field of education. The kids that have an internet connection are going to advance exponentially faster than the kids that don't. The kids that have high-powered devices that can handle that internet connection are going to advance exponentially faster than the kids that don't. The ones that don't have access to school lunches, that don't have access to school as childcare, anybody that's not allowed to work from home, like an essential worker, that kid's going to languish in daycare or they're going to be at home basically watching YouTube or whatever else kids uh, of like harken back to our generation, whatever else kids did back then is they don't have the cognitive experience of growing in a learning environment because at some point elementary school is more about learning what you can and can't do in a peer group setting. And it's not so much about academics. So I can teach my kids all about dinosaurs and space and, and money and it's fun. It's nice to see their eyes light up, but really at, at the age of second grade and pre-kindergarten where my kids are, it's about, no, you can't do that. To mm -hmm. be a civilized society, to be a person that's a part of a culture where we all get along, uh, for lack of a better word, the social contract, they're learning the formation of that relationship right now. And if they're at home with us, they're not getting it. Right. Right. Especially when the contract is one way and they just need to do what they're told or they get in trouble right? because the kids. Um, we're seeing it with um, schools in Colorado. I think there's this way. I'm not sure about Arizona. Uh, schools here are primarily funded through property taxes, um, mm -hmm. not sales, but the actual you know taxes on your home, et cetera. And that's where we see one of the biggest disparities in the quality of education. If you look at the uh, wealthier schools, they happen to be in wealthier neighborhoods, right? Where you have that million dollar home that somebody taxes on. Uh, the schools that, that perform at a lower level tend to be in neighborhoods that are surrounded by 
um, mobile home parks, trailer parks, and apartments, right? Where the, the property taxes aren't as lucrative. And that's the way it's been set up. So it, a lot of what we're seeing here is exactly what you described, where there's a, um, there's a disparity between those who already have and can afford to do it and probably already have that tablet in their house and the kids that have to go to school where the school can't afford to provide them with a tablet or a laptop. Um, and you know, they don't have a, a parent to show them what a giraffe is in a book, that sort of thing, because mom or dad is, is having to go out and work odd jobs, um, or work two to three jobs just to make ends meet. Yeah. So, you know, that's, I, I don't know how it's set up in California or, or Arizona at all. Um, even though I lived in both places, but, um, you know, that's, that's what we're and it, it's pretty sad. I know that a lot of the schools have stepped up to continue offering the uh, the free meals, but the, because funds are limited, the way that they've had to do that is only those who were on free and reduced lunch previously to all of this are the ones that are receiving it. So even though, you know, John or Sally, whose parents lost their jobs and they can no longer afford to feed their kids, they're not getting those free and reduced lunches. Uh, and, and that's a bit of an issue. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. When they all went to homeschool, it was, they did the best they could to be quite honest with, with, you know, such the whirlwind that all of us experienced and the, the change in work dynamic that we all had to deal with. The schools honestly weren't prepared to do remote learning and they put up a platform that needed a lot of TLC um, and they did the best they could. But it was most of the learning that we had out here was being done through worksheets. You know, they would put a, a worksheet for addition up or subtraction or multiplication tables, uh, or they'd watch a video on, um, you know, dinosaurs or the phases of the moon or the weather, and then they'd have to write a couple of sentences for questions. But it, just like in college, you know, much of college is not about actually what you're going to learn you're learning how to be an adult, right? Yep. 100%. 100%. We had to figure out, you know, that needed to actually do his, his hot dog water dishes before they started to smell. I mean, that was a step <laughs> for us. I always did my dishes, dude. Like, it was the pile of shit from everybody else. Paul's the one who wanted to turn around and, like, just pile up. Well, oh, you know what? We'll just get paper plates and, and forks. Like, oh, thanks, you Mother Earth is giving you the middle finger, asshole. <laughs> I love that you're still the Why am I hot dog water? <laughs> I still love hot dogs. Um, but, you know, like you said, what they're learning in that age is the, the general boundaries of life. You know, you can't just walk up and hit somebody. There's going to be consequences. You have It'd to. It'd be awesome if you could, wouldn't it? Yeah. Oh. And there's many oh, times where you could just legally slap somebody. Not hard. You know, Open hand. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you, you know, can give them a warning. Let them get ready. You know, give them a good one. Just let them know they did something stupid. And then we can all move on with our lives. But it's not legal. You get in trouble for it. You know, there's a lot from a social standpoint that the kids have to learn. Mine, um, I would say I have two step kids now also. Uh, but my own children are seven, nine, and 11. And a brood for you. And then I have a 17 year old who actually is moving up here. 
uh, from Peoria. He's going to finish out his uh, high school career here and then go to School of Mines or CU. And then a stepdaughter that's back down in Phoenix going to school. And she's almost 21. She'll be 21 in uh, August. You know, so it runs the gamut. And I see what the, the lack of socializ- socialization does. Here uh, where the kids wanted to play with the other kids in the cul-de-sac. We have a basketball hoop and you know, I'm in the garage cleaning it, and I turn around, and they've all congregated right next to each other shooting hoops. You know, those issues are, are very concerning. Um, we ultimately had to put a stop to it because we were afraid of the, the fear of the virus spreading. Uh, and now none of the kids hang out together. And it, yeah. it's sad, you know, and, and they hang out with each other. Um, like you talking about your kids going to blows earlier, we've we've got the mix of it. It, it happens. One of them was in Taekwondo for about three years, and He's got a, a swift kick to him and, you know, across the face before you know it. You know, another one doesn't acknowledge pain because he's, you know, it's a genetic thing and, you know, oh. he's off the walls and stomps everybody else and gets pissed off if he gets hurt and then reacts violently. And then there's the other one who's an 11 year old who has a whole lot of preteen stuff going on. And um, she's not, she's going to miss out on the trauma of middle school. <laughs> really? She's going to skip it completely, huh? I, I, thought, I thought girls handled middle school so much better. It's high school that killed the girls. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Although, I don't know. I don't have girls, so I can't tell you. What I do know is that by the time my boys are 13, I'm going to be laughing my ass off at everybody who's having a good time right now. Yeah. Suck it. Yep, it's a point and laugh as they make all the same mistakes you did, and then they wonder why it happens. My daughter uh, started shaving her leg about a year and a half ago. She she's the eleven year old. Raised her arm, and um, you know there was it was hairy under there. So you know we got her a, a razor, and she's now tragedy. It is, it is. And I'm I'm waiting for the day that mom or her stepmom tells me that she just had her periods. I know it's not going to come directly from her, and then I'll I'll truly have to fear and hate every single boy that walks around and that breathes on the face of this, of this earth. Wow, you know, we had this conversation once upon a time. You only got one baby to worry about. I know. I have a silver tongue eight-year-old <laughs> who, if he discovers his sexuality, I'm in real trouble. And then I have the beginnings of a professional baseball player who, <laughs> again, if he discovers his sexuality, I'm in real trouble. You want them to have all their fingers, all their toes. You want their eyes not to be crossed. You want them to have two eyebrows. You know, you you hope for all of those things when they pop out. But then as they get older and you watch them mature and develop, you start to think to yourself, I don't want to, I don't want to have that stress coming at me. Well, you know, when they popped out, I remember counting if with, you know, they were supposed to have 10 or 11, depending on which gender. And they had all their extremities. was fine. And as time has gone by, I got my first eye roll for my daughter a few weeks ago. And, you know, she said, yelled, okay, dad, and then her eyes. And, and it was like telling it, was, you know, one of our parents, okay, boomer. It was like that level of. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't actually used okay, boomer. Have you? No, oh, I, I get it all the time at work. It's awful. <laughs> like, really? Really? It yeah. doesn't even fit. It, it doesn't even fit. <laughs> but it's because I'm dealing with a bunch of, like, I have a co-workers that are just a lot younger than I am and I'm just like oh my god you kill me they're really smart they're really good good people to work with that's so funny uh, when they give kids it to you. these days yeah can't live with him you can't kill him
place is dead anyway, man. <laughs>